0: This is part eight of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one. So if you haven't heard that, go back. And the Rider. Part 8. The station. Peter Quinnell Live picked his scattered valises up off the roadway. Jackie picked up her backpack. He stared sadly at the bubbling on the surface of the far-off dam. He'd bought the freshly submerged car on the day he signed his 10th contract renewal at Five News. He'd inked his name on the dotted line in the morning and taken a cab straight over to the Italian car dealership to buy a vehicle that would give him the edge over his arch-rival, Carl Strasbourg at 12 News. Strasbourg was still driving a two-year-old Audi, and while the society pages hadn't yet eviscerated him for it, his time, surely, was running out. When it expired, Peter Quinnell Live intended to be the newsreader his nemesis was unfavourably compared to. In his opinion, the public expected their news delivered by someone forward-thinking, urbane and cosmopolitan, for whom European luxury vehicles came and went as easily as a gas bill, and he intended to give the public what they wanted. At the dealership, he'd waited patiently for the distinguished grey salesman with the Italian suit to pay attention to him. There were two salesmen on that day, the one with the Italian suit and a younger salesman with a brash and talkative style who looked like he rode a motorcycle. The old salesman was busy, so Peter started looking at some of the car brochures they had on the counter to kill time and to show the old guy that he was knowledgeable and could do his own research before he troubled him for his opinion. The absolute last thing Peter wanted was for the old guy to think Peter was the kind of person who would walk into a luxury car dealership and pepper him with a bunch of stupid questions that disrespected the pedigree of the fine motor vehicles. He probably hated it when people strolled into the dealership before they'd done any research themselves on interior finishes and talk. He probably thought people like that had no respect for his craft, when Peter actually had nothing but respect for it. The old salesman was helping some jackass with a walking stick, and he was taking his time about it, which was a problem for Peter, because he'd seen the young salesman who probably rode a motorcycle sniffing around looking for a sale. The young salesman was just plain too young to sell luxury cars. He probably based his knowledge on statistics and internal dealership memoranda and the computer rather than a lifetime of luxury driving experiences in the winding mountain roads of Tuscany. Peter didn't want him to confuse the issue by using the computer. There was a woman in a smart suit with a skirt and a pregnant belly. Peter spied his opportunity. I'm waiting for the old guy, he told her. ''Big deal,'' she said. ''We're all waiting for him.'' Peter could tell she wasn't going to be cheaply bought. ''Take the young guy,'' he urged her. ''Give him a chance. Let me have the old guy. I'll make it worth your while.'' She shrugged. ''He looks like he rides motorcycles.'' Peter beckoned her to step outside into the lot, where he used his foot to draw the words ''$50 commission'' in the white pebbles on the ground, and she laughed and said, ''Needs more zeros, pal.'' Peter thought about putting a zero in between the dollar sign and the 50, so it still said $50. Don't even think about putting the zero in between the dollar sign and the 50, so it still says $50, she said. So he put it after the 50, so it said $500. Over where the old car salesman was, the walking stick jackass was finishing up whatever stupid business he had. Worse, now there was another rich elderly man with a European look in an Italian suit right near them, who looked like he knew the old car guy from the yacht club. Peter started to panic. He drew another zero on the end, so it said $5,000. Now we're talking, the pregnant woman said, and she went over to the old guy. Help, I think my water's about to break, she told him. My pregnant wish is for you to help that guy first, and she pointed at Peter. Peter. To Peter's surprise, the old car guy had heard of pregnant wishes, and he said, Fair enough, and made a beeline for Peter. I want something elegant, Peter told him. Something that goes fast, and something everyone knows is expensive. This one, the old guy said, putting a hand on the car Peter was standing next to. Peter paid for it on the spot. You can use the counter over there for the ladies' commission, the old guy told him, and Peter walked over and signed a cheque for $5,000. Antonia Manfrotto, the old guy told him, and Peter made the cheque out to Antonia Manfrotto and on his way out he handed it over to the pregnant woman. A deal was a deal after all, and the last thing he wanted was to be the kind of guy who'd welch on a deal with a pregnant woman. As he got in his new car and turned the ignition, he looked back through the window of the dealership and saw the old guy kiss the pregnant woman on the lips. They each held a corner of the cheque and raised it in the air in celebration and laughed. They waved at Peter and laughed again, and he waved back and smiled. It was nice of the salesman to be so happy for the pregnant woman, he figured, although he wasn't sure how he'd known her name. That was just the mark of a great salesman, Peter supposed. In the gathering dark at the side of the country road, it was unclear, or maybe just unarticulated, what their move after next was. But the move they had to make now was to continue up the road. They were only a short drive from Mossvale, but a long walk. They trudged along through the twilight, each silent with their own thoughts. Peter was helpless. He didn't really know what to do without his car, and what impetus he had to think of an alternative plan to continue his getaway was sucked away by his growing suspicion that Jackie had a very clear plan of action. It was Peter's style to defer. As it happened, he was correct. Jackie did have a plan. It was a plan which had always involved them driving only as far as the town ahead before catching a train. She had the specific kind of street smarts that told her that to stay one step ahead of the long arm of the law, you had to be wily and unpredictable. You couldn't just run, you had to change the way you ran. Peter's distinctive and increasingly incriminating car had always been a liability, and it was good that it was bubbling away in the bottom of a dam. The long arm of the law in this specific instance was a senior constable in the New South Wales Police Force by the name of Samuel Goosewing, a slick and ambitious officer in his late 30s with a vast reserve of sympathy for famous people. When he flicked through the gossip rags in the wire racks at the supermarket checkout, he'd shake his head and click his tongue in stern disapproval as he read about Hollywood couples being sold out for a few shekels by ruthless ex housekeepers with a couple of salacious details from inside the velvet curtain. His friends knew not to criticise troubled entertainment personalities over a beer on Friday night. Through dumb luck, or perhaps design, who could say, the Quinnell Live file landed on his desk. He thumbed through it, shaking his head sadly. He waved it at another officer at another desk. Awful case, he offered rhetorically. He looked at it again, flushed with a sense of righteous anger. To him, the folder was an urn and the documents inside, ashes. The ashes of a respected broadcaster's promising career. His brow grew sweaty. He placed the folder on his desk and logged onto his computer. He typed Peter Quinnell Live into Google and read, occasionally shaking his head and whistling mournfully. It was a classic case of trial by media. It made him sick. The eyewitness accounts were highly emotional, big on accusation and small on facts. It was typical stuff. Give these people a red rag with a public profile and they'd charge at it. Where were the facts? He wanted to shout. The hard stuff. The real McCoy. As the desire registered he realised he could do that, and he did. The other officer in the room, the only one since it was getting late, looked up quickly at the sudden noise. I think it's all in there mate, they offered. Senior Constable Goosewing slumped with his head in his hands. He pressed the meat of his palms into his eye sockets and pushed. He found the sensation pleasing. It helped him think. After a few moments he opened the police database and loaded the case. He read the witness statements again and the brief report from the coroner. He checked the CCTV footage and realised with surprise that there was no CCTV footage. Very strange, he murmured to himself and checked surreptitiously to see if the other officer had noticed. They had not. He muttered again, very strange. The other officer stopped what they were doing and rolled their eyes, although Senior Constable Goosewing didn't see it. What's strange? They asked uninterestedly. Hmm? Goosewing said nonchalantly. Oh, it's just this case. Can you believe there's no CCTV footage of the man falling onto the tracks? I thought we had all the platforms wired for pictures. The other officer had to cover their mouth to keep from snorting at the phrase wired for pictures. Yeah, that's true, they said. Goosewing pushed back from his desk and lifted his feet up to rest them on the corner. Wow, he said, I might have just cracked it. That footage is the key. With a quick, confident movement, he tucked his feet back under the desk and opened another database, this one registering CCTV installations in public spaces, and noted with satisfaction that there were several cameras in operation on the platform on which the old Greek man had met his untimely death. It was nearly 9pm as Peter and Jackie passed Mossvale Showgrounds and turned left up the main street, Argyle Street. They ambled slowly through the quiet town centre, where self-consciously Tudor-roofed cafes and small businesses had already packed away the A-frame chalkboards that advertised their daily specials. Through the glass shop fronts, they were barely visible. Pie and drink, $6. Chicken necks, $3 a kilo. In the winter dark, only small congregations of people outside the Domino's Pizza and the Thai restaurant hinted at a modestly thriving local community. Peter and Jackie waited quietly and wearily at the traffic lights before trudging down their final descent to the station. It was a cold and quiet night, and as Peter and Jackie made their way to the ticket window in silence, their cheeks burned a little, and their breath made small puffs of fog in front of them. There was no one on the platform or in the bus bay by the station entrance, No one at the station at all, except a pale and yellowing young man with thin lips and greasy middle-parted hair who sat in the ticket window. His name tag said Michael Events. As Peter and Jackie approached the window, he glanced once more at the monitor in front of him. On the monitor was a national news website Mike had been reading to pass the lonely hours until he could go home to his girlfriend Cassie. And splashed across the top of the page was a grainy still image of a plain nearing middle-aged man and the words, New Peter Quinnell Live controversy. The article, if Mike had clicked on it, would have told him that embattled 5 News host Peter Quinnell Live had been filmed by a bystander in an encounter where he seemed to shoot dead another man. Mike would have read, had he clicked on the headline, that the video, if it was authentic, depicted a man bearing a striking resemblance to Peter Quinnell Live, the newsreader who was wanted for questioning by police over the death of an elderly Greek man at a Sydney train station. The embedded video captured the moment the newsreader's alleged lookalike shot a man with a revolver before identifying himself as Peter Quinnell Live and fleeing. If he had read the text that followed the headline, Mike would have learned that online commentators were already remarking on the curiously small size of the dead man and the fact that no report had been filed with police, no dead body recovered, and that while the video seemed to document a heinous misdeed, if the police could recover quite literally no evidence of a crime having taken place, then their hands were tied. Mike hadn't read the article. The reason he hadn't was because he didn't need to, He had a naturally incurious nature and an instinct for profiting from the suffering of others he had cultivated as a means of self-preservation. When Mike was 14, his parents, Helen and Mark, went out to the RSL for dinner on a Saturday night. They both ordered the roast. Helen drank white wine and Mark drank rum and coke. They complained about things with their friends, Dennis and Sue. They stood up for the ode of remembrance and entered the raffle. They lost. In the car on the way home, as they sobered up and the evening's fun receded into the background, they silently reflected on their parenthood and the course their life had taken as custodians of a churlish and silent teenager who was always on the computer. And as they turned into their quiet suburban street and saw, through the front room curtains of their home, the pale glow of a computer screen, Mark depressed the accelerator slightly. They simply drove past and never came back. They drove to Queensland and Helen got a job at a department store. Mark built up a small business as a handyman. At its peak, his business employed four handymen and subcontracted to local schools. They lived a comfortable life. Meanwhile, Mike noticed that his parents never came home, but didn't really care. He bought groceries online with a PayPal account that was still logged in on their computer. And when after some time the transactions continued to be processed successfully, he assumed the account was being topped up with new funds and thus that his parents were alive. For a year or so, he expected a knock on the door from an estate agent or landlord to tell him no rent had been paid and he would have to vacate. But the knock never came, and after a while, Mike realised it probably never would. He finished school and got a job driving a forklift in a warehouse. He used the money he saved on rent and groceries to play the stock market. And he lost every dollar he invested until he bought $100 worth of Bitcoin and sold them a year later for $80,000. He bought the most expensive gaming rig he could in hopes of making it as a professional esports gamer. After a few months of trying to balance his warehouse job with gaming practice, he resigned his job to focus on games. His reflexes and aptitude were terrible, due in part to the diet of low-nutrition instant meals he ate, but also to the fact that he was simply not a naturally gifted gamer. He gamed all day and all night, and at night he also posted on internet forums, which he did in the day as well. He was a huge pain in the arse. He was not stupid, but also not particularly bright. He radically overestimated his own intellect and liked to quote from The Art of War and other business advice books in amongst the arcane pop culture references he joylessly traded with other young men just like him. He organised raids on other forums. He gamed. He tore out tufts of pubic hair from the base of his penis as he uninterestedly masturbated. He propagated deeply stupid conspiracy theories in a complicated double-think of arch-ironic trolling and bitter scorn for anyone who dismissed them. He spent all his money on games and vociferously retaliated against any perceived insult to the hobby that had become his identity. He awoke every day hungry for games, and every day he gamed until his back hurt and his head was heavy and the joy of his activity had abandoned him entirely. He ended his days irritable and bilious. Slowly but surely, he forgot what it was like to be part of society. He lived on the computer, and it was just as well, because in a meritocracy, surely nothing could be more interesting than the computer. It provided avenues to people and places and opportunities you might go your whole life without experiencing, he knew. He gamed. He exchanged bon mots. He hurled eye-wateringly unpleasant insults at people he disagreed with. Occasionally he scrolled their posts and feeds for information about their lives he could post to remind them that they were never safe online. When he was 23 the money ran out. He put on a suit he bought during the good times and impressed in his job interview with RailCorp. He met Cassie at EB Games. The sun came up on his life once again. Two to Albury please, Peter mumbled and Mike smirked. Train doesn't stop at Albury anymore, he said. Nearer stop's Wangaratta. He printed the tickets and tapped them against the glass window. You're the guy, he observed lazily. From the news. The tickets came to $250. Peter pulled out his wallet and slid $300 under the glass. Mike didn't move. He looked at the small pile of bills and then back to Peter, who flinched with outrage at the blatant extortion attempt. Trying to blackmail me, are you, Michael? He squinted at the name tag and suddenly crumbled in fear. Michael Events? The young man's name couldn't really be Michael Events, could it? Was it a joke of some kind? Or an elaborate plan to humiliate him first and entrap him second? His hands began to shake and he fumbled in his wallet for more. He drew out a messy handful of maybe $180 and stuffed it under the glass. Mike shrugged luxuriously, snickered and lifted his phone up to take a picture of Peter and Jackie. Hey! Jackie shouted indignantly. Hey! Oi! She knocked furiously on the glass. Mike shrugged and dismounted the stool he was sitting on. ''You can't do that, you little turd!'' Jackie yelled. Peter looked pained. Mike raised his hands in a kind of aimless bewilderment. ''Why can't I?'' he asked, but in a tone that sounded more like an inquiry than a challenge. It caught Jackie off guard, and she stared at him in bug-eyed irritation for a moment before stammering, ''Because I'll, I'll, I'll tell your boss.'' ''My boss works in Sydney.'' Mike said proudly. I'm the only one who works here. You can't call my boss because you'd have to know the right number to call and the right name to ask for, and I'm not going to tell you either of those. And you can't ask anyone else because I'm the only one who works here. He was incredibly right, and everyone knew it, with government bureaucracy being what it was and the stakes what they were. Mossvale was just one small stop on a backwater train line that operated at a loss. They were lucky to have a young fellow manning the ticket window at Mossvale Station, someone who knew about computers and could still get up and down a stepladder. There would have been no point in complaining about Mike, because he'd never be reprimanded for fear that he'd quit. And in any case, his name wasn't really Mike, it was Billy. Billy had been hired when Mike went on workers' comp for falling off a stepladder seven years ago. He had successfully called Jackie's Bluff. She had no intention of complaining about him, but she still rankled at his sniggering indifference. Mike at Mossvale Station? I reckon there's someone who'll know who the unscrupulous little turd who's asking for bribes is. But he was already retreating slowly into the back of the station office, calm and confident in the knowledge that the two strange, exhausted-looking travellers buying overnight tickets to Country Victoria would call no-one about him. There was nothing Jackie and Peter could do but look helplessly after him. And once they'd done that, there was nothing else but to wait for the train to arrive. The screen on the platform showed 45 minutes to go. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read, and produced by me, Max Laverne. I'd love to hear from you if you've been enjoying it. You can tweet at me, prawn underscore meat, or send me an email, maxlaverne at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation at koficom slash maxlaverne. If you know anyone who's into cults, make sure you tell them about this podcast because next week in episode nine, there's a cult. So it's a great time to join the family, as they probably say.